one specific purpose, one overarching purpose to worship Christ this morning. Uh, let's be called to worship uh, from First Chronicles chapter 16, and I'll read a portion, then I'll have you read a section with me. But the chronicler writes, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it, and let's say this all together. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, Amen. and they praised the Lord. Let's stand up and do that. I stand amazed, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean.
would be seated. We just sang about the marvelous love of our God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that love is supremely communicated to us in two related ways. First and foremost, the objective work of God in Christ to secure salvation for sinners. Jesus Christ came, and He came as our substitute. And He fulfilled the law's demands. He kept all righteousness because we don't. We're unrighteous. Then he went to the cross and he took the wrath for our unrighteousness. Our sin was imputed to him. He secured salvation objectively through his cross and then his resurrection from the grave. But then there's a subjective aspect of that where the Spirit comes and applies that work to sinners. And that's why salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle of grace as the Spirit of God works regenerate conversion in sinners. And one of the great evidences of that is the church. The church is the company of the redeemed as God is in Christ saving sinners as he came to do. And baptism is the symbol. It is the mark of what Christ has accomplished for sinners. And the subjective aspect of that where the spirit applies that work to our hearts, our affections, and our minds. That's why Paul would write, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. And so baptism is the church's act of affirming one's union in Christ. It's also the believer's act of committing him or herself to Christ and to Christ's body. And today we have someone doing that. Uh, Adela Mears is coming on profession of faith. So Adela, if you want to make your way up here. I've met with Adela this week. Of course, we all know Adela. She's like the, the young person scholar of the church. And um, she wants to share her testimony just for a moment. I have thrown up. I have thrown up. Be closer. I have grown up in a Christian family and church, known all of the old Bible stories, and I've done Awana. I I gave myself to God when I was ten because I believe that Christ was the Son of God, and that he died for me and was raised from the dead, and that he would come again one day. But two years ago, my eyes were opened to something new, that I am not in control of everything. Unlike lying about my supposed-to-be-cleaned room or blaming my siblings for something that I did or stuff of the sort, although all sin is equally bad, I realize that all that happens is in God's control. control. I started reading the Bible before dead and praying, and going over old notes I took of sermons. During our time of quarantine this year, I thought about myself even more. When I felt unsure, I would sing three main songs to myself, Cornerstone, Christ is Shore, and Steady Anchor, and He Will Hold Me Fast. And I decided that I believe I need to turn away from sin and trust God. I believe that God will always be there for me in trials. I believe that He chose me from the beginning. And I believe that anyone who believes these things and asks for salvation will be saved. 
sit down. Adela, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came as your substitute to live in your place, to die in your place, and to be raised from the grave in your place? Yes. Amen. Adela, because of your profession of faith, your repentant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and out of obedience to our Lord's commands, I baptize you today, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Let's pray. How marvelous is our Savior's love for us. Thank you, Lord, for saving sinners. We pray that those here today that have never trusted in Jesus would see what this baptism represents, that we need a Savior to die in our place, to be raised from the grave in our place. I pray that sinners would be converted to Christ even through the means of grace of baptism. Thank you, Lord, for saving Adela. We pray for the many others here, or the few others here, who, who still need to, to be born again and to, to be converted to Jesus. We pray that they would be saved. And we pray today as we continue in our service that we could celebrate that love supremely expressed to us in your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Church, one of the great things that we've seen today, evidence, and one thing that Pastor Brian has said and reminded us of is we can come to God only through Christ and because of what he has accomplished for us on the cross, not merely made possible, but actually secured for us. So let's stand together and let's sing of the cross.
Cheers. 
has done for us. And we as a grateful people, we look back to the cross and we say thank you. We lift up a hallelujah, singing praise the one, the risen son of God. Because apart from the risenness of the son and the resurrection of the incarnate son of God, apart from that, we above all people would be most to be pitied, Paul says. But because of his resurrection, it ensures that we can look forward to the day when we too will be resurrected, raised to life with immortal bodies, no longer stricken by the realities of sin in this world. But yet in the meantime, by your spirit and through the preached word and as we sing your truth to one another and back to you, by that means of grace, keep your people faithful to walk with you with love for God and love for neighbor each day, bringing glory to Christ. And we pray all of these things by your spirit and through him, our high priest, to you we pray and ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. We'll turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Thank you, Barry and worship team, band. We're leading us in worship, preparing us for worship as we hear the word preached today. You know, for the longest time, you know, we, we look outside in our culture right now and it's disheartening. Uh, it, it can enrage you. Uh, it's discouraging. It's frustrating. And yet we, we know from Scripture God is no less sovereign today. We're going to see that today in our text. One of the benefits of the chaos and the nonsense that we're seeing is that for the longest we have, we have said that the church is an embassy in a foreign land representing another government, another king. And it's hard to understand that when this land feels like home. And it feels less like home now, doesn't it? And, and that can actually benefit us as the people of God. We gather together as an assembly of, you may say, ambassadors. Uh, this, these times we gather are to reinvigorate us, 
to, to go out into that foreign land and herald that there's another king that has won and will win. And so it makes these times much more sweet and special for us as we do life in a, in a world opposed. That's not to say we want to see what's going on. We pray for a, an awakening. We pray for a revival, and God can do that. But it begins with the people of God, doesn't it? Well, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to, to give us ears to hear today. Father, thank you for your word. Indeed, we sing hallelujah. And we thank you for a completed canon, an all-sufficient, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, completed canon. And we thank you that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of your Son that we know through this completed canon and by faith. We pray today that as the word is expounded from 2 Samuel 16, that we will benefit in the manner in which the Spirit intended for us to benefit when he breathed out these words to the human author. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges, the book of Judges, which covers the time that precedes the book of Samuel, is an apologetic, if you will, for why the people of God need a godly king, a godly Messiah, a godly deliverer. The best man can offer are these broken judges. In fact, as you, you see these judges throughout the book, there are six kind of frames, six deliverances throughout the book. Begins with a pretty good judge in Afnil, but they, they, they get increasingly worse. The worst of the worst is Samson, the final judge. You never see Samson praying. You never see Samson quoting scripture. He is completely ruled by his base and carnal instincts. Well, that's the time of the judges. And it's an apologetic, a defense for why we need a godly king. For example, in Judges chapter 9, Gideon's son, Abimelech, in his desire to be king at Shechem, kills 70 of his half-brothers. Well, at least he thought he killed 70. There was one who got away, the youngest, named Jotham. And in response, Jotham shares a fable with the people designed to warn of the likes of Abimelech as king. It was a parable, if you will, warning against appointing the wrong king. In Judges chapter 9, here's what he says. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees, of course, which represents Israel, 
said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men? Go hold sway over the trees. Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so you see here, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine turned down the office of king in order to remain true to their God-ordained purpose. And so the trees, in desperation, compromise with the bramble. Now, the entire book of Judges leading up to Samuel is aimed to show Israel they need a righteous king because brambles will devastate. Brambles will devastate. And now, in Samuel, they have that king. In David, in spite of all of his flaws, and yet now... And we should not be surprised. The kingdom of God is being attacked. It's always under attack. It's being attacked by a rogue son. A bramble, if you will. And this has led David to a self-imposed exile into the wilderness in order to save the people from judgment. And along the way, We saw this in chapter 15. He gives, the text gives us three encounters with friends. Ittai, the Gittite, Zadok, and Hushai. And all all three of these are evidences that in spite of the, the, the difficulties, in spite of the storm, God is present with David. And that and that is a wonderful word for us. We will find ourselves in this broken world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. We're going to find ourselves in in difficult times. We find ourselves there now, don't we? And yet God has a way of encouraging his people, of reminding them that in spite of the chaos, in spite of the nonsense, he's there, he's present, he's no less sovereign. We saw that with David's friends last week. Today, we're going to meet three adversaries. And in this particular chapter, it's going to remind us that there's still spiritual warfare on the kingdom of God. Of course, the kingdom of God at that time was expressed through David. The first adversary in this chapter is a man named Ziba. We might say, we might describe him He'll go down in history, for that matter, as Ziba the liar. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Notice with me in verse 1. So David is on exile here. He's on his reverse kind of exodus. And when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba the servant of a Mephibosheth. Now, we we met him in chapter 9. All right, He was the one that made David aware of Mephibosheth. And it says he met him, so it appears that he was waiting on David. With a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 
200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer, summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Of course, David would have needed it. He got out of town pretty quickly. He could have used all of the things that Ziba was providing here. But he responds with really two kind of reactions, suspicion and, I'm sure, gratitude. Well, notice in the second part of verse 2, Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And that is Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Well, this story is sketchy from the beginning. First of all, the last time we saw Mephibosheth, back in chapter 9, God had, or David had brought him to the king's table, treated him like a son. He was essentially adopted into the, the king's family. And Mephibosheth was overcome with gratitude. That's what grace, that's what mercy does, right? It provokes gratitude. One of the evidences that we are walking in the grace of God is we're grateful people. Mephibosheth was a very grateful person. Not to mention the fact that Mephibosheth was lame and crippled in both his feet. Now, why is that important? Obviously, lame and crippled people, physically so, are important to God. They're, they're no less important than anyone else. But one of the main functions of a king was to fight the people's battles. And a lame king cannot do that. And so his, his story is sketchy from the very beginning. So what's going on here? Well, it's simple. Ziba is lying. Now, how do we know he's lying? We know it definitively. If we, if we wanted to cheat, we moved over to chapter 19. He's going to acknowledge that he lied. In fact, Mephibosheth's going to come into that conversation, and Mephibosheth's going to make it very clear that what Ziba is saying about him is untrue. And this might be what we would call Zebaism. Zebaism, I think, remember this, the seed of every sin is ever in every human heart. There is no sin that, we, that any person commits that any other person is not capable except for the restraining common grace of God. Okay, And so Zebaism is alive and well in every human heart. And with Zebaism, you have someone who is willing to hurt someone else or even misrepresent them for the purposes of their own agenda and benefit. And it may work for a time. It certainly works here for a time. Notice with me in verse 4. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. That's remarkable to me. He jumped to conclusions immediately. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. This reminds us 
of the importance of heeding the Bible's requirement for proper evidence before judgment is passed on anything. That's critical, especially in our day. We have all these different news sources coming at us. And sometimes these news sources contradict each other. Like all of us, in given situations, David should have deferred thinking the worst of Mephibosheth. He had no reason to think the worst of Mephibosheth, but he does. He should have deferred thinking the worst of this man until he heard the other side. A man seems right until someone comes along and examines him. With that said, in spite of Ziba's sinful motives and David's unfortunate rush to judgment, God is providing for David's need. This was exactly what David needed. He needed food for his people. He needed transportation for his people. Maybe this was behind Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6. Remember, Psalm 3, you can see it in the superscription there. It was written when David was on the run from his son Absalom. And in Psalm 3, verse 5, listen to this. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Isn't that beautiful? He was able to sleep. If you're like me, there are times you're too uptight and anxious to sleep. You lack at that moment the appropriation of the peace of Jesus Christ. But the Lord is providing for David. He's sustaining him. He's giving him manna in the wilderness. Every day, new morning mercies. Every day, David awoke... God showed up. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And the reason for that is God versus a thousand, he wins. And so we see here that God is providing for David even in his, his imperfections. Now, Ziba, for his part, is profiting at this moment. He's profiting for a time from deceiving the king. And so he bows. And so he bows. But he bows to the king only because he got what he wanted. I am convinced that the reason... Now, there are some wonderful, big megachurches out there. This is not a universal indictment on megachurches. There's some really healthy megachurches with healthy leadership. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have high attendance in churches in America is because we've been getting what we want. We have prospered as a nation, and we're healthy, wealthy, and entertained. But the test of one's faith is what happens when you don't get what you want. That, that's the test of maturity. We're going to see how filled the churches are when all of this nonsense continues. It's easy to bow to the king when you get what you want. The test is when you don't. Like what we see next with the second adversary, 
who is Shimei, the accuser. Look with me in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man, the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. He's not talking about profanity here as much as he is, he is pronouncing curses on David. So this is David's fifth encounter. Ziba was the fourth. Shimei is the fifth. And this particular encounter involves an onslaught of antagonistic criticism from someone identified as a relative of King Saul. It says he cursed continually. That's important. That word curse is found eight times in verses 5 to 13. But perhaps even more important than that, for the first time since David's troubles began with Absalom in chapter 13, the text uses the full title, King David. Notice again in verse 5. It says, When King David came to Bahurim. The text is reminding us that David has not been rejected as king. In spite of the insurrection, in spite of the coup, David is still God's king in spite of his imperfections. And this drives home that God has not rejected him and that what Shimei is doing is of the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit. Any, any accusation, any attack against God's anointed, the Messiah, is the spirit of Antichrist. And what Shimei does here will determine the rest of his life. In fact, he will always be remembered for what he says to David here. And the crucial thing to remember from him is that vitriolic people, and we all can be that, let's be honest, but those whose lives are patterned by vitriol, vitriolic people invariably think that their biggest problem resides outside of them and that their biggest issue is not their heart. It's what's happened to them. I think that's behind this whole, this movement towards socialism. This movement towards equality of outcomes. There are people out there who think their biggest problem is outside of them. Scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches the heart of the problem, the problem of the heart. And so this is shimmyism. And we see it with this man. He believes David is his problem. Notice in verse 6. And he threw stones at David. Now, stones under the stone throwing under the old covenant is a sentence of death. He is pronouncing death 
on the king. All right, so he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And again, we're reminded he's king. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of God, or man of blood, you worthless man. <coughs> the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Of course, the text has been very intentional to prove to us David's innocence with regard to Saul. David was, David's was not an insurrection against Saul. God had come to David through Samuel and anointed him as king. And then Saul himself, he was behind his own self-destruction. And then Abner, his, his right-hand guy, had been assassinated by Joab. And then Ishbosheth, his son, had been killed by his own people. The scripture was very clear. And then, and then David disciplined and in some cases judged those who had done these things to Saul's house. But again, the irony is remarkable here. None of Shimei's accusations are true, and yet it's also clear for different reasons that the Lord's hand was behind David's troubles. Remember, there's forgiveness of sins, but there's also consequences. Sometimes those consequences for our behavior never, ever go away. And that is the case with David. David knew that. David was very aware of that. His nephew, which I tend to like too much, forgive me, did not know that. Again, we're introduced to Abishai in verse 9. I'm not supposed, we're not supposed to like Abishai, okay? We're not supposed to resonate with him. He's like Charles Bronson back in the, the Vind- you know, the, those old vigilante movies. Verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, David's sister, so this is his nephew, he said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. And the first time I read that, I said, amen. (laughs) I'm not supposed to say amen to that. Now, first time we saw him in action, in 1 Samuel 26, he went with David down to Saul's camp. And while Saul was was sleeping, he, he stole his sword, he stole his water bottle. And he said famously, let me pin him to the earth. It will only take one strike. And we love that. Later, in chapter 23, we're going to see him slay 300 men with his own spear. Abishai has made the observation that people without heads don't curse the king. All right? And that's behind his reasoning. And there's something right about his mindset. There is. A jealousy for honor, jealousy for righteousness, a jealousy to protect the name of the king, the Messiah. 
Peter, in fact, speaking of false teachers in 2 Peter 2 and the unrighteous in 2 Peter says this, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. Remember that. You're seeing a lot of unrighteousness today in our culture. The Lord knows what he's doing. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. That's not our pay grade. That's beyond our pay grade. God does that, and he's good at it. But then he says, especially those who despise authority. Isn't that interesting? Those who despise authority. Obviously, Shimei here despises authority. That's our natural state, isn't it? Our natural position, our default state, is to despise authority. And so God puts all of these authoritative structures in place to teach us how to submit to authority. And then Jude speaks of these people, and he says, these people reject authority. And then he goes on and says, these people, verse 10 of Jude, blaspheme all that they do not understand. That's my tendency. It is. Maybe it's your tendency. But it's shimmyism. And so Abishai has justifiable frustration and indignation. But there's a way to deal with frustration and a way not to. And David realizes that. Notice in verse 10. But the king said, what have I to do with you? You sons, notice sons, Abishai is not the only one of those brothers like that. His brother Joab is, is his match in this. You sons of Zeruah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And so David here is disassociating himself from this way of Abishai and his way that he would deal with Shimei. Four times, in fact, in verses 10 to 12, he references the Lord. You're going to see the name Yahweh in verses 10 to 12 because he senses, David senses, that Shimei's humiliation of him is part of the penalty imposed on him by the Lord. Yes, his sins have been forgiven, but when he brought this high-handed sin into his life and into his family, he brought the consequences and the penalties for it as well. And so David is not going to vindicate himself. I mean, this is remarkable to me to see this. This is the most powerful man on earth, and he will not vindicate himself. Yes, he was innocent of Shimei's charges, but he was humbled with the sense of sin that had brought these events upon him in the first place. And I think this is an important point for us all. And I got to tell you, this has convicted me all week. I, the point I'm about to make, I'm making to the man in the mirror. If it applies to you, good. But I'm working through this, all right? When we face false accusations like David was facing with Shimei, we should remember our sins that our accusers know nothing about. All right? So David was being falsely accused. 
But there were plenty of sins in David's life that he could have been accused of. All right? And so when we are falsely accused, and you will be, we live in a world that is under the ruler of this age who is the accuser, right? And so that's how he primarily works. His primary methodology is through accusation. Remember, when you are falsely accused, those people are accusing you of things that may or may not be true, but there's a whole lot of other stuff they could accuse you of that the Lord has blinded them to by his grace. Indeed, David gives two reasons for accepting this public cursing. First of all, the first reason, he was actually guilty of even worse sins than what Shimei was accusing him of. Notice in verse 11. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. Now, what Shimei is doing is sinful. And we need to understand that this is a, a, an important theological discussion here. We can't spend a lot of time on it. God does not unilaterally affect evil. All right? He does not unilaterally affect evil the way he unilaterally affects good. All right? But he is sovereign over evil. The cross is the great example of that. If he wasn't sovereign over the cross, which is the most evil act in the history of the world, then the cross is just an unfortunate accident in history. And we know it's not an unfortunate accident in history. It was the plan of the ages. But God does not unilaterally affect evil, but he does direct even evil to fit his glorious purposes and plans. Look at the story of Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. He goes into Egypt and, and sits at the right hand of the Pharaoh. He's enthroned at the right hand of the Pharaoh and mediates physical salvation for Israel and the world. He mediates bread so that the nations in Israel may live. And yet he tells his brothers, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. Certainly they were guilty of sending or selling him into slavery. Certainly they were guilty of their sins. And yet he recognized divine sovereignty prevailed even over their sin. All right? David sees here that the cursing is what he deserves. Not for the reasons Shimei gives, but for his sins committed in chapter 11. Adultery and murder. And, and he adds here that Shimei is doing nothing more than his own son is doing. The second reason David accepts this public cursing is seen in verse 12. Notice in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Very important point here. David knew that the way to appeal to God's mercy is from a posture of humility. 
What does Peter tell us later? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. James tells us that those who humble themselves receive mercy. David knew that, knew that ahead of time. Shimei's actions are wicked. They deserve judgment. But David could see the Lord's purpose in it. And this is crucial for us. Evil never. Remember this. We see a lot of evil today. I mean, I would have never dreamed that Marxism, which has killed a hundred million people in the last hundred years, behind the most deaths in the last hundred years, I would have never dreamed that Marxism would take on traction in our United States. All right? We're seeing a lot of evil today. But evil never frustrates God's purposes. Of course, evil is never justified. We speak out against it. We do all that we can do. All right? We never justify it, though, just because God uses it for good. But the principle here is Genesis 50-20. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. All right? You may not understand the good that he's working, but he is good. He is good in his very essence. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. All right? And so we have to know that's all he can do. He is good. And he is working out everything for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If this is just another part of the Lord's discipline, David says, I'm content to leave that with him. Notice in verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. The whole situation makes you weary. And then you add on top of that these accusations. But there... He refreshed himself. I love that. But no sooner has he refreshed himself than he, he has to deal with the third adversary in this text. Warfare on the kingdom is what's going on here in this chapter. Hithophel the betrayer, we see, starting in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Remember, Ahithophel was David's confidant, his counselor, his beloved friend that he had shared many meals with. All right? And now he's betrayed David. And when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. So what we see here, we're going to see Hushai is David's friend. The text is very intentional to, to communicate that to us. 
we're going to see one of the greatest, most successful acts of subterfuge in the history of Israel. He's going to use double entendre, where a word can have more than one meaning, as his weapon. He doesn't say, long live Absalom, but long live the king. Notice verse 17. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Again, the, the text is emphasizing that Hushai is David's friend. Hushai said to Absalom, Know for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. He's still serving his father. And the reasoning he's serving Absalom here is because he's serving his father. Because David had told Hushai, we saw this last week, to go back to the palace and to work and gather intel that he would then share with the priest. But this worked, and it always works with egomaniacs, with narcissism. Those who are narcissistic are are given to flattery. All right? Now, Hushai is not flattering him, but he is using double entendre. It is clear here. He's serving the king by serving his son. And this is heroic because Hushai's life is in danger to do this. He's doing this out of obedience to his friend, the king. So he's a hero here. But there's another hero here, and it's an ironic hero. Ahithophel is a hero. He doesn't even know it. Because the Lord is using him like he used the unwitting Judas Iscariot. You think the Lord used Judas in the most heinous act in history, the betrayal of the Son of God? He used him, didn't he? Judas didn't know he was being used, but he did. He was just a pawn in the king's hand. And we see this with Ahithophel. Notice in verse 20. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house in all Israel here, that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Of course, this is the epitome of wickedness, treachery. It's something that none of us can fathom, but he knows what Absalom is motivated by. Carnal instincts. And it's not the things of God. It's carnal ambition. And he appeals to that. Now, if Absalom follows this advice, it would be a crime so heinous that the law of God mandated the death penalty for those who committed such wickedness. Leviticus 20, verse 11. And the fact that Ahithophel would propose such a wicked plan is evidence that the Lord has answered David's prayer. You remember last week when he prayed that 
the Lord would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He prayed that prayer. And the fact that Ahithophel would give such wicked counsel is evidence that the Lord has answered that prayer. It's more evidence that the Lord is with David. Even in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, the struggle, the Lord keeps showing his hand. It's also, though, a fulfillment of David's judgment. God's judgment, God's discipline on David. If you'll remember back in chapter 12, when Nathan came to David, here's what he said to David. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And so we see here, this is a fulfillment of that. And that's one reason that there is hope here for every believer in this room. Because even though it depicts a judgment on the king, the text is showing us that the betrayer is still in the hands of God. Ahithophel gives that wicked advice, and all it does is it fulfills the promise of discipline that God had given David through Nathan. Again, the Lord sits enthroned. He is no less sovereign in the midst of this craziness. Now notice in verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. When was the last time we read about a roof? This is the same roof where the, all the troubles begin. The writer expects us to pick that up. This has taken us back to chapter 11. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, as promised in chapter 12. So, verse 23 ends... <coughs> And things look quite hopeless at this point. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was this one, as if one consulted the word of God. So was also the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Again, more irony here. This counsel that Hithophel gave, as horrific as it is, ends up accomplishing God's plan. His plan for David. Hithophel is not aware of his being used by God to fulfill God's promise of discipline for David. But he is. And this council will end up accomplishing God's plan for the greater David who would come. We've pointed out, we, we saw this last week, that David's reverse exodus. Remember, the exodus is when they... They left the wilderness and they went into the land of inheritance. 
And David now has crossed the brook of Kidron, and he has left the city of peace and gone into the wilderness. It's a reverse exodus. And we pointed out that that reverse exodus from Jerusalem points us to Jesus' own exile, his own departure from the city to take up the cross so that he can reside as the true king over true and faithful subjects. That's how he makes true and faithful subjects. It will be by taking our place on the cross, paying for our sins. And perhaps the strongest connection in that regard in this text is the humility with which both David and Jesus bore the curse of sin. Of course, there's discontinuity. David was bearing the curse, the curses of his own sin from Shimei. He was bearing the curses of his own sin from another sinner in Shimei. He was humiliated for his own sins. Jesus, the greater David, bore our sins, the sins of his people. But the curse didn't come from another sinner like Shimei. The curse came from the Father. The curse came from God himself. The curse on sin. And the curse came on the Son to stop this sin cycle that we have seen since Genesis chapter 3. Interestingly, their respective humiliations were in part dependent on a betrayer. All right? We saw last week, David wrote Psalm 41.9 on this occasion to refer to Ahithophel. In Psalm 41.9, here's what he said. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. All right? John, the disciple, the apostle, picks that verse up. More Specifically, Jesus picks that verse up and John writes about it in John 13. And he tells us that Ahithophel's betrayal of David was just an index finger pointing us to something even more catastrophic and evil than that. John 13, 18, Jesus says these words to his disciples, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What Jesus is saying there is there was a betrayal way back when. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is found in the betrayal of the Son of God. And that's why he says the scripture will be fulfilled. Just more evidence. That evil does not and cannot thwart the plan of God. How important is that for us today? Evil abounds. It's almost as if God has just withdrawn his common grace in our culture. He's giving us a vision of what happens when he withdraws his common grace. 
People are not more wicked today than in previous generations. We've always been wicked. We've had God's restraining grace. All right? He's withdrawing that common grace, and we're seeing it in HD. All right? It cannot thwart God's plan. The greatest evil happened at the cross, and it fulfilled God's plan. Okay? So this is important for us to see. In fact, I want you to consider these words from 1 Corinthians 11 as we close. I had never seen this until this week. And I want you to see it because it provoked worship in me. And I hope it does for you. And it's related to what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas, okay, was typified by Ahithophel, right? The word there, I'm going to give it to you. It's not important that you remember it. Paradidomai. That's the Greek word, betrayed. It can also be translated delivered. So you could say on the night when he was delivered over, okay? He was betrayed. He took bread after being betrayed. Remarkably, the same verb is used by Paul in Romans 8.32. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's referring to Judas delivering over Jesus. In Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Same verb. Paradinamite. It's not that the father betrayed him. You have to translate verbs in their context. But he delivered him over. He delivered him over. 1 Corinthians 11, it's Judas doing the delivering. That's wicked. In Romans 8.32, it's God doing the delivering. Do you see the point? Evil does not thwart the plan of God. God turns it on its head. And that's our hope as the people of God. It's our hope. So on the one hand, like Ahithophel, the betrayer, Judas hands over Jesus, but actually God hands over his son. And remarkably, Judas' wicked scheme only carries out God's ultimate plan, salvation for his people. Isn't that hopeful? And if you have never trusted in Jesus, recognize God delivering over his son is so that the likes of you could be saved. If you will just confess your sin, I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment. And God delivered Jesus over to be judged in my place. The Bible says you can be saved. And that is the gospel. And that's what we began our service with this morning. With Adela publicly confessing that very reality. This is a hopeful text in the midst of utter chaos. A timely word for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We thank you.
that evil does not prevail. We know that you do not directly cause evil. You hate evil. And yet you turn it on its head. And the greatest, greatest evidence of that is the resurrection. Because the most evil thing that's ever happened in the history of the world was the cross. Because that was the day, the only time in history, bad things happened to good people. And the good person there was the Son of God. Ontologically, inherently good. And yet, he was crucified. Evil. And yet, it was your plan. Because in that crucifixion, our sins were imputed to him. They were penalized in him. And then you raised him from the grave, reversing the curse on our sin. Indeed, we deserve the curses that David received from Shimei. We deserve the curse that Jesus received at the cross. But instead of curse, we are blessed. We are justified. And I pray, Lord, those in this room that do not yet believe that message would come to believe that and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.